Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today we will be talking with Professor Shira Klein, who is joining us from Chapman University in Orange, California. She'll be talking with us about her new book, Italy's Jews, From Emancipation to Fascism. Shira, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Before we get into it, though, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. Um, I was born in England and I was raised in Israel. And um, I did my undergraduate degree at Tel Aviv University and my MA in uh, Rome in uh, La Sapienza. And then I did my PhD at New York University, um, where I double majored, so to speak, in history and in Judaic studies. Um, And I guess I mentioned that because um, my work, as uh, I'll sort of speak about in a moment, um, encompasses all three countries, which is um, the US and Israel and Italy. Um, and so how did you, let's, let's get into the book then. How did you come to write Italy's Jews? Uh, what brought you to the topic? Well, um, as I mentioned, I went to Italy for my MA. I actually went there even earlier as an, as an undergraduate in an exchange program from Tel Aviv University. And I was immediately intrigued by, um, by Italian history and by Italian, the Italian Jewish community today. And um, I sort of put it in the, in the back of my mind and then went on with my, um, my graduate degree. And then I started, uh, started my PhD, started in a totally different direction. I was looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then I oh, decided, wow. yeah, totally different. <laughs> I was sure I was going to write my dissertation on that. And, um, yeah. And then I, and then I, um, decided to change directions and, um, I wasn't, wasn't really enjoying working on the conflict. And I thought, what am I going to work on? And I started reading about um, 
uh, I started reading about it, reading Italian Jewish history, sort of going back to that moment in my in my travels and thinking maybe maybe this is something that I could explore. And I found that there was relatively little um, out there in terms of secondary sources, particularly for the Anglophone world. And I thought, why is this? And um, and what what else could be said? And and how does it compare to things I'd I'd, I'd read a lot about, like German Jewish history or or Israeli history? And and um, and what's missing? from from this field and 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 how can I maybe address it and since I had Italian um and um I, I thought I thought I might embark on that project but I also wanted to look at migration since this was this was another interest of mine and then I sort of put that all together and and came up with this project that looks at um Italian Jewish history um in a sort of large a swath of time from the 19th century to post-world war ii but it also looks at a large um spectrum spatially or geographically it looks at um, refugees in the united states and in palestine that, that came from italy and the book really does um examine yeah quite quite a span of time tell us about um this myth of italian benevolence uh that you sort of seek to to dig into uh what does what does it claim yeah so so that's really one of the main themes of the book. Um, it, it looks at uh, what what I call and what, what other historians have called the, the myth of Italian benevolence, and and it looks at what at, at what Jews' role has been um, in that myth or or in, or in supporting that myth. So so what is that myth? That, that that's a good question. Um, the myth of Italian benevolence is this idea that Italians in World War II saved Jews and helped them. And mm. that um, that Italy, well, there's several renditions of the myth, but um, either either that Italy had no racism of its own towards Jews or no anti-Jewish policies of its own, or in some variations of the myth is that, yes, it did have some racism, but it really paled in comparison to what Germany was doing. It was it was just an import from Germany. So it was a, it was a poor imitation of, of German racism. And it really didn't have the backing of the Italian masses. It was something that um, at most Mussolini and a few of his henchmen um, wanted uh, or did, but that most Italians were... were um, were were far from uh, this racist outview, or or very far removed from from persecuting Jews, and on the contrary, that um, their Italy's role in in the war um, was to save Jews, and all of those points are not 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 exactly true, and that's why um, they can they can be called a myth, or the, the the myth of the good Italian, or the myth the myth of Italiani brava gente, which means again Italians um, are good people, or the myth of Italian benevolence. Scott, got all these different names you pick, you can pick and choose. Okay. Yeah, I definitely, I think I was taught that, you know, Italy was an ally of, of course, of the Axis powers, but that they weren't participating in actively, at least in the anti-Semitic elements of, right, right. Um, of the war. Yes, that's exactly the myth. And the, the truth. So, so the way, the way to, um, to, 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 to um, grapple with this myth is to look at what actually did happen. Um, and what actually did happen is that Italy pursued a brutal racist policy towards Jews. Um, and it did so completely independently of Germany. Um, and it did so over the course of um, 
several very long years, and I say very long years because they were very long years for Italian Jews, the, um, very much suffering that Italian Jews had to to, to endure. Um, and um, and that, um, and that even after the German invasion, and I'll, I'll speak about that more later, but even after Germany does come into the picture and does start calling the shots, even then um, Italy has an independent role to play in rounding up the Jews and handing them, them over to the Germans. Um, and so that's why this this idea of, of Italy having no racism or very little racism or um, or just an imitation of, of German racism, that's why that's... Um, that, that, that's just a story. It's, 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 it's a wrong story. Okay. Okay. So far from, yeah, I mean, far from being passive, they were actually not even just collaborators, but actively um, setting out. Yes. To, yes. Yeah. Proposing anti-Semitic so. policy. Yes. So what other, in addition to this question about, you know, the truth behind this, um, this history of Italian anti-Semitism, what other questions did you set out to answer with your book? And how did you go about researching them. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that question of, um, of Italy's myth and, and what was the role of Jews in, in creating this myth? Um, so that was, that was one of the, yeah. one of my questions. And, um, another question was, um, looking further back, um, I wanted to look at how Jews fared under fascism before everything went wrong. Fascism came to power in 1922 and the first racial laws come, right. come on the scene in 1938. And I was wondering, what was life like under fascism um, before then, during those those 16 years? And um, and, I, and I was curious as to why, why Jews didn't leave Italy at that time, because we think of fascism today as, um, you know, fascism is wrong. I mean, if you're, if you're an enlightened person, you'll probably agree fascism isn't something very nice. And, and, um, and so why did, why did Jews um, choose to stay under that regime when, when nobody was forcing them? So, so that was one question, sort of what was Jews' relation to, relationship to fascism? Um, and I found some very, very surprising findings in that, in that respect. Um, and another question was, what was happening with Jewish culture um, um, uh, in in the modern period in 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 modern Italy, um, and again one so I was sort of uh, looking at this assumption. Um, you could also call it a myth, but but perhaps more an assumption that um, in the wake of emancipation, Italian Jews became so Italian that they lost their Jewish culture. And um, I had read about other Jewish cultures in in Western Europe and in Central Europe, like Germany and France. I'd read that that wasn't the case, that they didn't assimilate, that they didn't share their Jewish culture. But yet Italian uh, historians or historians of, of, of Italian Jewry seem to argue that they were. So that was another assumption that I wanted to tackle. Um, did Italian Jews really, really lose their Judaism? And again, over there, I found some some surprising answers suggesting that, that it wasn't as simple as um, as that. So how did you go about then um, answering these questions? I mean, what archives did you go to? What sort of material did you look at? I looked at archives in um, three different countries. I looked at archives in um, in Israel, um, uh, primarily, so those in Israel were, were primarily to look at Italian Jewish refugees who fled to Palestine in 38, 39, 40, 41. Okay. Then I looked at um, archives in the US, again, looking at refugees who, who had fled to uh, New York or um, other places on the East Coast, um, 
a few also on the West Coast um, uh, fleeing the racial laws. And mostly I looked at archives in Italy, um, particularly in uh, Florence, Turin, Rome, Milan, Venice. Um, these were some of the centers of, of Italian Jewish life. And, and, um, and I looked at um, archives of the Italian Jewish communities um, and and then I I did a, quite a lot of digging as well outside of the archives. So I I met with, well I would say dozens of people to collect unpublished memoirs. You know when people, particularly when people grow old, they start writing their life stories, maybe for children or for grandchildren to read. And I said, can I have a copy of that? Wow. And, um, yeah. And so I got all these unpublished um, materials that that could by rights be in archive, but, but in archives, but aren't. And right. um, and that was important to me because one of my one of my passions, I, I would say, is to to give vo- a voice to the people who who don't normally find uh, their way into um, into into history, into historical record, into the historical record. Um, right. So yeah. And so these these are people who. Oh, oh, sorry. How did people react when you asked them for you know their personal memoirs? How yeah, how often with surprise because often they didn't think that there was anything of importance in what they'd written. They thought, oh, it's just my personal story. Um, and also, often people thought, um, particularly those who had migrated as refugees or even who had survived the war in hiding, they thought, well, if I wasn't in Auschwitz, then maybe my story doesn't count as much as 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 a, as, as, a, as a, a camp survivor as, as that of a camp survivor. Um, and okay. then I would have to do some convincing work um, to say, well, actually, these are very interesting stories, right? They tell a they tell a, a, a story that has has virtually been um, uh, uncovered until now, and um, and and it's worth your while giving me a copy, and which yeah. and then I then I of course will will deposit those or have already deposited most of them in an archive, so that in case future scholars would like to look at them. Okay, fascinating. So let's move on to sort of what you found when you went through all of this material. So um, you, the focus of your book is, of course, how they how Jews experienced the Second World War in Italy. But you also do talk about the history of Jews and specifically Jewish Italian patriotism in Italy um, in the century really leading up to the Second World War. I wonder if you could give us some background information on this history. Sure. For us amateurs. Absolutely. Um, so so if I can backtrack for a minute and I'll just say if if one of my questions was or or one of my arguments is that um Italian Jews played a role in forging or in supporting this myth of of the good Italian. And um they did that by saying really um all those things that I mentioned before that 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 constitute the myth, which is Italian Jews said, um that Italy didn't really mean to pass its racial laws, that Italy um, never meant to round up Jews, that, um, that, that Italy was just importing this racism from Germany. And I was curious mm. as to why Italian Jews would say those things, why they would give such a flattering view of Italy when that wasn't exactly the case, right? That didn't really happen. And to answer that question, I wanted to go further back than just the World War, just the Second World War, because it seemed to me that there had to have been deeper roots for um, that kind of, um, that kind of, uh, um, narrative that, 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 that they were, um, that they were cultivating. So, um, 
I looked back and I and I and I reach all the way to the 19th century when Italy is born and Italy is born in um, well the, the movement to unify Italy is is in the 1830s 1840s and then um, 1861 uh, the kingdom the kingdom of Italy is born and and I wondered how did this have to do with what happens later and what I found is that Italian Jews equated the Italian state with liberty. And they, mm. yes, they thought that um, that they owed their liberty. They owed the fact that they were living outside of the ghettos, that they had become equal citizens. They believed that they owed that to the Italian state because up until statehood, um, Italian Jews had been discriminated against as as most uh, as most European Jews had been before what historians call emancipation, which is the process of getting equal rights. And Jews in Italy, um, in the same way, um, uh, had been discriminated against. Most of them lived in ghettos. Most of them uh, were subject to restrictions as to um, what they could work in. And it wasn't until Italy becomes a state, it's not until the birth of, of modern Italy, that um, Italian Jews gained their emancipation. So they hold this image of Italy as a liberator. And when the racial laws come out, they... That, that sort of view of Italy informs their reaction. And they say, there's no way that this country that gave us our liberty, to whom we owe our liberty, there's no way that it could turn against us. And so they end up saying, it must be that um, Mussolini was forced by Germany to pass these racial laws and to persecute Jews. It must be that Italians don't support it. It must be that Germany is leading Italy, kicking and screaming into into discriminating against the Jews. Um, and so that's, that's what, that's why I went further back. Um, and, um, and, and, and the other thing I found when, when I went further back that, that again informed the way that they were reacting to persecution in World War II was that Italian Jews were, were, were rather happy under fascism from 1922 to 1938. Um, uh, the, yeah, wow. they were, they were, uh, mostly middle class, um, I call this, I call the period of, of, uh, of what happens to them from the late 19th century until 38, I call it the rise and rise of Italian Jews in my book, because really they're just, um, they're, um, they're having, they're having a good time. They, Italy has an industrial boom at the end of the 19th century and Italian Jews are very well placed to, 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 um, to, to, to benefit from that boom. They're, they're mostly in the north, they're mostly in the towns or in the cities, and they're mostly in trade. And that makes them um, really, uh, 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 sorry, that, that makes them uh, uh, really well placed to, to, um, to, to, to rise up the ranks uh, of the social ladder and, 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 and go, go into the middle class. And even fascism doesn't really mar their sense of belonging in Italian society. In fact, fascism catered to the middle class. Um, fascism's whole slogan was um, to quash the uh, the strikes of the, of the working class and to um, to bring the working class um, under its thumb and and to and to, to to control the working class so that the middle class wouldn't have to worry about about disruptive strikes or about a Bolshevist revolution or about any other kind of threat to the status quo um, 
And Italian Jews, uh, uh, along with the rest of the middle class, breathed with relief when, when Mussolini came to power because he put an end to um, this turbulent time uh, or the working class turbulence. And, um, and throughout the 1920s and 1930s, um, they either support Mussolini or um, they're indifferent to Mussolini or they mildly oppose him, but very few Italian Jews um, diametrically opposed him. I'm not saying that none did. There were there were famous Jewish anti-fascists, but um, the majority of Italian Jews did not really mind fascism, and some of them even supported it. So, again, um, that when uh, when 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 the racial laws come along, they just can't believe that Mussolini could be behind it. They can't believe that that it could be Italy's independent choice to um, to persecute them. So. When then were anti-Semitic laws introduced in Italy? When did things change legally for Italian Jews? Well, um, things really change in summer of 1938. July of 1938, the Italian government issues what they call the Racist Manifesto. And this manifesto says Italians are a race and Jews are not part of that race. And from there, things deteriorate very quickly. The first racial law comes out soon after that. And it uh, it defines Jews. It says, um, you are Jewish if X, Y, Z. So it tells you w- what it means to be Jewish. And then it discriminates against Jews. Okay. Um, so there was any any number of discriminations. Children could no longer go to public schools. Um, Italian uh, Jews mm. could no longer marry non-Jews. Um People, uh, Jews could no longer work in most professions. They were fired from the silver services. They were expelled from the military. Um, and after these, uh, after these rule, uh, after these laws, which were which were signed uh, by the king, then came a spate of directives, which carried just as much weight as the laws. And these were um, these were endless. Uh, so Jews could not um, advertise. They could not uh, be on the radio. They could not uh, go to the seaside. They could not. Um, um, uh, they could not. Uh, 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 rent uh, uh, an apartment in um, in certain buildings. They could not uh, work in any number of professions, and the list goes on and on. You name it, it was probably there. Wow! So it seems like these Jews who were, as you described, pretty comfortable up until 1938, were very suddenly hit with extremely drastic and strict uh, racial laws that discriminated against them. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And you get in memoirs and, and, and in uh, testimonies and even in diaries from the time, you get this, um, the, uh, the, the language that Italian Jews use to describe this. Um, they often they often refer to the weather. So or wow. they often use a, a weather metaphors and they say it was like um, a, a bolt of lightning or um, thunder in the middle of a, of a blue skies day or um, or uh, or a storm that suddenly came upon them without without any forecast and this is really how they felt they they just sort of they were totally in shock they said what how uh, how on earth could this have happened and um and i think that shock is also partly partly what informs their disbelief and their their unwillingness to believe that this was an italian initiative totally independent from from germany um mm. because they had been um uh, so happy um under uh, fascism uh, and 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 in and in italy before 19 1938. But 
um, unfortunately, this this disbelief uh, uh, wasn't warranted because um, things just got uh, uh, worse and worse with time. So, 1938, you get uh, all these directives, and uh, and life becomes uh, ever harder, ever more isolated, and they become social pariahs, um, uh, and and some of them even try to to immigrate because of that. And uh, then in June 1940, Italy joins the war, and from that point, you get internment of uh, mostly foreign Jews, some some native Jews as well in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Again, these are totally independent of Germany. These are uh, homebred concentration camps in Italy proper. Um, and uh, and then later on, you get uh, forced labor as well. So some Italian Jews are subjected to, to forced labor, particularly in, in manual menial labor, such as lugging lumber or, or very difficult things like that. And, um, and, these are not just um, top-down directives. These are grassroots uh, initiatives as well. So you get people hanging up signs in their stores saying, um, no Jews here, or this is an Aryan shop. And no law said that they had to do that, right? That was one of the, I mean, I mean, I said, I said, you name it, and it's probably there. But actually, there were lots of things that Italians, non-Jewish Italians did that, that were not uh, 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 uh decreed by law and that they just took the initiative and and went ahead and and discriminated against their neighbors. So things like graffiti, things like casual violence, uh, slaps, cuffs, child bullying gets much worse um, during these years. Um, And then, uh, of course, uh, uh, financial uh, abuse, uh, whether buying out Jews, uh, Jewish uh, businesses for very, very cheap um, uh, and, and that kind of behavior. So yeah. you get a mix of top-down policies, but also uh, grassroots uh, anti-Semitism. And one of the things that happens during this time from 1938 to 1943, because 43 will be a very big turning point, but from 38 to 43, you see something um, that will recur after 43 with very lethal consequences and that is denunciations. Um, so from 38 to 43, when Italy is totally independent and it has these racial laws and it's discriminating against the Jews, um, Ita- ordinary Italians, so civilians and, and just, you know, folks uh, sort of on the street, so to speak, they write letters, anonymous letters to the police um, denouncing Italian Jews for evading the racial laws. So if they find someone, for instance, who has Mm. hired um, a Christian babysitter, and that was something that was forbidden to do, Italian Jews could not hire uh, Christian help, um, then 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 they'll write a letter saying, such and such person who is a Jew has hired a Jewish babysitter, please go arrest them, right? Or please go and intervene. Yeah, and so you get these again, this grassroots, um, these grassroots initiatives, basically betraying Jews, um, so as to better implement the racial laws or get the police to better do their job. That's so interesting because I think that I think of when we, you know, when we talk about denunciations during the Second World War, we think of um, individuals denouncing people simply for being Jews. But I suppose that it was different in Italy because the Italian government was really mostly as you said, incarcerating foreign Jews, but was it that to incarcerate Italian Jews, they had to sort of break a law or um, am I understanding that correctly? Um, so, well, actually, the, so, the, so they, they incarcerate uh, foreign Jews. That's true. They put them in concentration camps and, and a few native Jews as well. But, um, you know, if you, if you broke the law, 
then um, you could be stopped or you could be fined um, or you could be uh, sued. And, and so that's what, um, that's what uh, Italian denunciations are trying to do. They're saying, look, this person is breaking the law, go and do something about it. Um, and up to 1943, the consequences are not lethal. But from 43, um, and maybe this is a good time to segue into what happens um, in 1943. So 1943 is another big turning point. If I said the first turning point is 38 with the racial laws, 43 is when things get much, much worse. And ironically, they start getting worse by seeming to get better. <laughs> Let me explain that. So um, summer of 1943, the Allies land in North Africa. And Jews are absolutely overjoyed to hear this because it looks like um, it looks like Italy is going to soon be uh, taken over by the Allies. And the Italian leadership, um, seeing that the Allies are getting closer and closer, hastily decides to switch sides. Not Mussolini. But the rest of the leadership, yes. And what they do is they oust Mussolini and imprison him at the top of a mountain. And um, they secretly um, switch sides um, uh, 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 to, uh, or, or they start start negotiations with with the Allies. And uh, very soon, when when this becomes known, and and, uh, and the Italians uh, sign sign an armistice with the Allies, then uh, Germany pours its forces into the north and rescue Mussolini and uh, reinstate him at the head of a government called the government of Salo, because it was headquartered in Salo, which is a sleepy little town um, at the tip of, of Lago di Garda, which is uh, a lake in northern Italy. And um, then Italy is effectively split into two. In the south, um, the Allies are around and, and they work their way up. And the front line keeps inching uh, northwards uh, as the war wears on. And in the north, you get the Germans and the Italians um, sort of uh, uh, you get a, a joint government um, in the sense that Germany has full military power, um, but Italy has administrative control. And that's important because it meant that Italy was in control of the police. And uh, more on that in a second. But what happens is that as soon as Germany enters Italy, um, it does what it does by that point. And uh, we're talking about September 43. At that point, its policy towards all Jews in Europe is very clear cut. And that is deportation to killing camps in the east. And that's exactly what it does. So it goes around um, Italy and starts deporting Jews um, to go east, uh, to, to primarily to Auschwitz. Um, so the Germans act solo for a while in these deportations, but in late November 43, the Italian government decides that it too wants a hand in deporting Jews, or sorry, in, in rounding up Jews. And what it does is it issues police order number five, this, this important directive in Italian history. Police order number five says, Italian police will round up Jews, put them in concentration camps or in prisons or in, in places where they can be watched and um, uh, confiscate their capital. And, um, and that is exactly what happens. So Italian police go around rounding up Jews um, 
and confiscate their capital and then hand them over to the Germans. The Germans put them on convoys. They get sent to Auschwitz where they're gassed uh, when they arrive. And um, and so again, here you see Italian complicity or, or Italian uh, uh, initiative because police order number five was um, totally an Italian order without any pressure from Germany. And, um, and it made Italians complicit in rounding up Jews and confiscating their property. And, and you can, and, and, and you can probably see the mo- motive behind that, which is that they wanted um, Jewish property. Um, and, um, and, and here, and yes, and here is when, where the denunciations became lethal because um because if Jews were in hiding, um, and 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 an Italian, let's say, neighbor or acquaintance or um, or business uh, a competitor um, happened to know where an Italian Jewish person was hiding, they could denounce them, and there was a price on Jews' heads, so they could even get rewarded for it. And um, and denunciations were widespread at this time. So uh, what begins in '38 denouncing Jews for evading the racial laws turns into 1943 into these very dangerous denunciations that that mean that Jews could get caught by uh, Italian police or by German soldiers and um, and and get sent to their death. And the fact is that almost half of all uh, rounded up Jews that we know of. Um, were were rounded up by either by Italian police working on their own or Italian police working um, together with uh, 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 German soldiers. Wow. So there really was this active Italian participation. Um, yes, yes, and that's um, that, that's something that the other historians have shown as well, and that that, that I um, uh, mention uh, in the book, sort of building on what other historians did. But but one thing I do that that is um, that is new is look at um, interviews and, and oral testimonies, and I've looked at four hundred twenty-five um, oral histories in the USC Shoah Foundation yeah. um, of Italian Jewish survivors, which which are basically all of the um, all of the interviews by Italian Jewish survivors in that database. That's um, incredible. As someone who used oral testimony, I will say that is a lot of work. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily listen to, to each one of them um, uh, uh, from start to finish, but um, fortunately there's this lovely little thing called keywords, which you can search. And I looked for mentions of betrayal and I found that fully three quarters, um, sorry, so fully a quarter of all of these um, interviews mentioned a betrayal. Now you may think that that's a little, you may think that that's a lot, but consider that this statistic would have um, definitely been larger if um if the victims of Auschwitz had been able, in some theoretical world, to give their testimony, because of course, this is a self-selective group, right? Those who survived um, were less likely to have been betrayed. And even there, fully a quarter of them mentioned a betrayal. So it would probably have been a larger percentage if we'd had uh, more testimonies uh, of those who were were actually deported. Wow, absolutely. Um, That's fascinating. So so then we have this group or a couple of groups of Italian Jews who escape Italy. And I find your discussion of the Italian Jewish refugee experience particularly fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit about what you uncovered about their history and the history of Jewish refugees specifically in the United States and in Palestine? How did their experiences diverge or overlap? And how did they see and perceive Italy from afar? (laughs) 
the Jews, so so um, several hundred Jews go to the United States and several hundred go to Palestine. And although they're a small group, they actually have a very interesting role in, um, in uh, uh, particularly those in the United States, in uh, uh, strengthening um, this myth of the benevolent Italian, right? To go to go back to that uh, theme that we, that we were talking about before. And what happens is that these refugees in the United States. Um, they get there in um, in thirty late thirty eight, right after the first racial laws come out, and then thirty nine, even forty forty one, if they can get out of Italy that late, um, and they develop a curiously nostalgic memory or view of Italy. Mm. Not which is not to say that they that they are pro fascism or anything. They become vehemently anti-fascist whatever their um whatever their sympathies with fascism had been before the war after 38 um you find very few jews who are or pro-fascism uh, if, if any but even though they're pro they're, they're anti-fascist they sort of weave this um this image or or this um this 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 painting uh weave a painting that that doesn't quite work let's start again <laughs> weave the, a tapestry um, the, yes exactly thank you thank you they weave a tapestry of um of what life was like in italy and what italians are like which is very very flattering and again a, a, a sort of verging on the mythical um and um and 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 what they end up saying is italy and fascist Italy are two diametrically opposed countries. And they say there is a line that you can draw between Italy and between fascism. Um, and uh, uh, of course, that wasn't entirely true because uh, many, many, many Italians were fascist, uh, not to mention some Ju Italian Jews had been fascist, right? right. But um, they say, if you are fascist, you are not Italian. And for them, the true Italy is the anti-fascist Italy. And that true Italy would never do anything to harm Jews. And mm. so they uh, uh, sort of, again, um, I don't want to say spin a tail because that sounds that, that they're doing it sort of um, malevolently. And, and I don't think that was the case, but they definitely tell a story about how um, Italians uh, were just absolutely fabulous and absolutely good and how Italy was the most beautiful country and beautiful in its in its environment, but also in its soul and, and how it was uh, uh Germany had led it kicking and screaming into doing all these vile things, not just against Jews, but uh, uh, against the world or, or against the allies. Um, and, and why do Italian Jews in the United States um, tell this story? Why do they, why do they support this myth? Um, for a couple of reasons, but one reason was um, because they were very nervous about the United States going to the peninsula and bombing it. Um, and they, oh. uh, right, because they still have family there, right? I mean, uh, the refugees are a very tiny minority. The majority stayed in Italy. And so they're worried about what the United States is going to do when it, when it reaches the shore of the peninsula. Um, and, and you actually get speeches by refugees saying, um, American soldiers, uh, when you go to the peninsula, when you go to Italy, just remember that Italians are your friends, um, and so that's one of the reasons they do it. Another reason is definitely because they're trying to reach out to the the massive Italian American audience there, and so they're they're creating what they think of very consciously as propaganda, which is saying, 
most Italians are anti-fascist and therefore you, Italian-American listeners or readers, whether it's radio programs or, or newspapers, um, you should also be anti-fascist. So by trying to persuade Italian-Americans to, 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 to be anti-fascist and, and to, to, to sort of to hate Mussolini, um, they are uh, effectively telling a story about Italy as, um, as a totally anti-fascist country, which, which of course um, it, it, it wasn't. It's fascinating because just because you already talked about um, the self-selective nature of uh, groups who avoided being denounced, I suppose this group also hadn't had that experience likely of denunciation or had they? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. They probably, because they left um, rather early, right? They weren't there in 43 um, and, and they weren't even there. I mean, those of them who leave in late 38, right? They don't even experience... Um, all the isolation and the uh, the discrimination and and even the other laws that, or directives that come out later on. So in a sense, they they might have actually had a more, slightly more benign experience um, than than Italian Jews who who stay in Italy uh, and certainly those who stay in Italy past forty three. But interestingly. Um, in private correspondence, Italian Jews are actually. Um, pointing a slightly more blameful finger or slightly more accusing finger at Italians. And they're saying, just between ourselves, we know that many, many Italians are collaborating with the Germans, right? If it's after 43 or even before 43, just between ourselves, um, when I was kicked out of um of, of, of my art studio, um, the artists around me gloated, right? So they're saying just between ourselves, things aren't as perfect as they seem. But when they start publishing, right, and Italian Jews have a strong pet presence in the anti-fascist press in the United States um, and, and, and on radio programs, when they speak publicly, um, that's a totally different story. And there, they're a lot more um, exculpating towards, uh, towards Italians or a, a lot more flattering. Wow. So there's a big difference between the private conversations that they have among fellow Italian Jews and how they present this image of benevolent, anti-fascist Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhat of a difference. I mean, I wouldn't want to over, uh, sort of to, to overstress that point, but, but yes. And, and I suppose that's, uh, um, I guess that's the nature, right, of uh, of public speaking versus uh, private speaking. Absolutely. Like uh, like in this interview, obviously, I won't, uh, <laughs> you know, I won't won't go into my deepest secrets. But uh, whereas whereas in maybe in a private WhatsApp or, or email correspondence, I might I might right. divulge a little bit more. Um, but yes, there's certainly that element of the public sphere versus the private sphere. And so, how does the situation of Italian Jewish refugees in Palestine compare to that of Italian Jewish refugees in the United States? Very different, very different in the sense that Italian Jews in Palestine do not at all um, speak about Italy with that kind of nostalgia. And if anything, they, um, they, they, they castigate Italy because what happens with Italian refugees, Italian Jewish refugees in Palestine is they find themselves landing into this very uh, Zionist uh, environment and uh, the Zionist environment of 1930s Palestine um, rejected anything that had to do with the diaspora. Diaspora being defined as anywhere outside of the land of Israel, which is a term that uh, that Zionists uh, used for for uh, Jewish Palestine uh, or, or the Jewish community in uh, in Palestine, and. Um, 
And the idea behind this was that Jews should not live in the diaspora. They should be moving to Palestine to set up a national Jewish homeland. And Italy, along with anywhere else in Europe or anywhere else in the world that wasn't that wasn't the land of Israel, uh, fell under this definition of diaspora. And Italian Jews adopt this kind of jargon. They adopt this kind of uh, language and they say, oh, yes, Italian, Italy is a diaspora. We want nothing to do with the diaspora. We're, we're going to become good Zionists. Um, mm. We're going to become good Jewish nationalists. But still, um, what we find um, is that without even realizing it or certainly without publicly acknowledging it, they're clinging to Italy. And that, by the way, was was one of the titles that I was considering for the book. Um oh. Yes, but of course, an author rarely gets to choose their own title. So, <laughs> um, but uh, but what happens is that they they cling to Italy in the sense that just as the the refugees in the U.S. Um, are are clinging to this uh, sort of uh, um, uh, pink uh, uh, or seeing in Italy through 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 a pink lens or or clinging to Italy uh, uh, to, to 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 a good view of Italy to, to seeing Italy as as a sort of beautiful uh, place in in heart and in soul. In the same way, refugees in Palestine are clinging to Italy through through its culture, through through their lifestyles. Um, they're they're making Italian food. Um, they're uh, wearing Italian clothes. They're listening to Italian music. They're mm. decorating their homes with Italian furniture. They're right. reading Italian literature, and through all these different ways, they're actually importing. If you, if you will, a little Italy into Palestine, oh. and uh, and without realizing it, very much uh, continuing their their diaspora ways um, uh, uh, in in this uh, sort of uh, uh, Zionist hotbed. And I guess those elements of clinging to Italy were presumably less you know less intentional. They're sort of accidentally keeping these Italian ties in some ways. Um, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And they're doing it while at the same time um, really criticizing um, any Italian Jews who uh, either chose to go back to Italy after having immigrated to Palestine, right, if they if they weren't happy in Palestine, some of them chose to go back. Or, um, right, after the Presumably. war, exactly. Yes. Uh, or even after the war, the, um, uh, those who chose to stay in Italy, right? Survivors uh, who who had uh, survived in hiding, or come back from Auschwitz, or come back from 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 from, from fleeing to Switzerland. Um, not everyone wanted to go to to Palestine um, after the war and and Israel from from nineteen forty eight onwards. And these refugees who had come in thirty eight, thirty nine, nineteen forty, they end up really harshly criticizing these folks. Um, so they'd really internalize these Zionist messages of all Jews must live in. Israel or, 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 in, or in Palestine before 48. Um, and yet, interestingly enough, um, in, in their lifestyle, they were, they were totally Italian. And did you find that these Jews, these Jewish refugees who went to Palestine, were they Zionists often before they went to Palestine? Did they choose to go to Palestine because of that or... Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, I think I think the majority of them had some ties to um, Zionism, so some ties to Jewish nationalism, some ties to thinking about um, Jews as a nation or thinking about a homeland. But <clears throat> but certainly that wasn't their main reason for going to Palestine. Their main reason was the 1938 laws. Right. So in a sense, the push factor was far more important than the pull factor, um, if you will. Mm. And, um, 
It's not as though the whole world was open to them and they thought, hmm, where shall I go today? I think I'll go to Palestine because I'm so Zionist. Um, it was a very, uh, very distraught time for Jews. Uh, most countries were closed to Jewish refugees, not just Italians, but but all countries. Uh, so, sorry, but but all um, all Jewish refugees. Um, for instance, the U.S. had a strict quota system. Um, uh, Britain had uh, migration restrictions. France did as well, and um, and Palestine had some restrictions as well. But but there were ways of of getting a visa to go there. So I think it's probably a combination of having some uh, Zionist. Um, um, uh, uh, affiliation or, or some Zionist right. feelings, like for instance, maybe they had contributed to um, to the Zionist, to, to the Italian Zionist Federation, or maybe they um, had given money for settlement in Palestine, or maybe they had bought a book or or, or a newspaper that, that was affiliated or, or that, 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 that spoke about Palestine. Um, but really it was, really it was the racial laws that just made them want to up and leave um, as quickly as possible. Right. So Shira, because we do have a bit of time left, I wonder if you could tell us how this book, especially, you know, belonging to a body of literature that might not be as developed as German Jewish history or even French Jewish history, um, how do you see it fitting into new directions in in Jewish studies, in Holocaust history, um, and in, yeah, in those fields? Yeah. Um well, that's a good question. Well, can I, I might refer, first of all, to the historiography, um, just Italian historiography, right? The, yeah. the, the field of Italian studies. And um, so, so there's, um, there's a whole history about the, uh, the Brava Gente myth, right? The, 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 the myth of the benevolent Italian. And it's not just about Jews. Um, so for a long time, it was thought that Italy had been just one of the good guys in World War II, and um, and that its occupation, for instance, of um, of Greece and the Balkans had been really benign. Um, that um, and that its treatment, even before World War II, its treatment of of its of of of, of its colonies in Africa had been very benign, um, uh, very kind. Um, and then um, in in the in the in the 1990s. Um, a new generation of historians began questioning this very flattering view of Italy and began saying, was it really as it seems? And um, historians that looked at um, Italy's occupation of Greece um, said otherwise. And historians that looked at Italy's occupation of Ethiopia said otherwise. And historians that looked at um, Italy's treatment towards Jews said otherwise. So it, so, so it sort of fits into this broader trajectory that tries to understand um, how Italy really acted in all these different scenarios and suggesting that it wasn't as um, as kind as had previously been thought. But 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 what I found and 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 so so all of that has, has sort of um, other historians have definitely acknowledged, but, but what I found fascinating was that Jews themselves um, Jews were, were 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 the very victims, or, or one of the one of the groups of victims, right? Because of course there were there were the, there were victims in the Balkans as well, and and, and African victims, perhaps perhaps the, the the most victimized of all, or, or those who suffered the, the, the most, are, are are the African victims. But but how, I was wondering how did Jews who were the, the, the victims of um, this very aggression, how did they come um, to to uh, uh, to support this view of um, of Italian benevolence? And mm. so that's where I saw myself as making contribution to this this historiography, um, this larger Italian uh, uh, field. Um, 
And then as far as how it contributes to um, uh, to Holocaust history, I think there's some really interesting work taking place, very cutting-edge research um, that likes to contrast what happened in the war or what happened in the Holocaust with what people think happened. And this, there's really interesting work that has been done about France concerning the Vichy syndrome and um, an interesting work that has been done uh, about Ger- uh, in Germany concerning um, uh, German Germans trying to sort of sweep the Holocaust under the rug. And, and there's work being done now about the Netherlands as well and, mm-hmm. and about Poland. Poland. And so I was interested in how the Italian case fits uh, fits into this um, this sort of uh, juxtaposing um, what we know happened in the Holocaust with what um, with what films might say about what happened, or or um, or newspapers, or or even Wikipedia. Um, uh, so popular perceptions of of the Holocaust and how how they differ from what what actually happened, and. Could I actually say something that sort of kind of digress a tiny bit since I mentioned Wikipedia? Absolutely. So I just wanted to tell um, listeners about um, about this uh, about what's what's happening with Wikipedia and 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 these histories and um, in Wikipedia, where Wikipedia is is one of the one of the sources for the myth of the uh, of the good Italian, because if you look at the the Italian uh, uh, the, the the article or articles in Wikipedia on the Holocaust in Italy or on Jews under fascism or on the racial laws, you you get statements like most Italians oppose the racial laws or um, the racial laws were imposed on Italy by Germany. So classic. Um, classic uh, uh, benevolence myth 101 right um, and and of course wikipedia has a far far greater audience than my book could ever hope to have or or you know any other book uh, dispelling these myths could ever hope to have and so it's just one way of of suggesting to to us why um why this myth um is so powerful um, because we get things like we get places like Wikipedia, these really popular fount- fountains of knowledge, um, perpetuating them. And, and another another source of of that uh, of of that kind of wrong view is uh, "Life is Beautiful," which which some people listening to this may have seen. Right, uh, "La Vita yes. è Bella," very famous Italian film. And so again, in my book, I sort of explain how that how that gives us a very very entertaining, right, very. Uh, fun to watch. Yes, (laughs) yes. But very false view of what was actually happening in Italy. Shira, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. And I know we've taken up quite a bit of your time. And also that this has been, this book itself has been such a huge undertaking for you. Um, It's really an immense achievement. Um, So this next question um, might sort of seem crazy considering that. However, what are you working on next? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. And one I, uh, one, you know, I have to put in my tenure file too, so <laughs> I should know the answer to that. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm actually interested now in looking at, um, at Italian Jews and uh, the colonies in Africa. And um, the intersection, or, or sort of the um, the encounter between um, Italy's Jews and 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 Italy's empire, um, 
because when I was looking at uh, Italian Jews under fascism in the interwar periods or before 38, I found, I think what I mentioned is this curious phenomenon of Jews um, not really opposing Mussolini. And one of their reasons for not really opposing Mussolini was that they were quite thrilled about Italy's foreign policy and in particular um, its, um, its imperial um uh, its imperial uh, um, achievements and, and Mussolini's uh, imperial achievements. So I'm really interested in looking at what kind of encounter Italian Jews had with um, with the colonies, and was it as simple as just being uh, just being uh, uh, just having a colonial mindset, or was there something more complicated at work there? And were they looking at African Jews and thinking how maybe um, Italy's presence in Africa could help um, indigenous Jews in Africa, places like Ethiopia. We've got the Falasha, uh, places like uh, North Africa and Libya. There is a very large Jewish community. Um, so that's uh, that's sort of um, very briefly uh, what I'm going to look at next and, and wish me luck from <laughs> the very, very start of that next yes. project. Definitely good luck. That sounds like a fascinating and extremely understudied field. Um, I look forward to reading your next book. Thank you. And then, so, so we'll meet again in the next interview. <laughs> yes, definitely. In a couple of years. Yeah. Shira, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Robin. It's been my pleasure. That was Shira Klein talking about her new book, Italy's Jews from Emancipation to Fascism, which is available now through Cambridge University Press. You should check it out. This has been New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks so much for listening. 